Joe Paterno is not happy. He's still smarting from a recent 31 to 11 defeat to the Tennessee Volunteers. Tennessee leads Penn State 30-3. But that's not why he's unhappy today. Today, it's because he's looking ahead to his 1972 schedule and he sees something almost unbelievable, incomprehensible. Somehow, someway, in spite of his team making the journey to Knoxville at the end of 1971, a season that would have been undefeated if not for said journey, his team is now scheduled to play its home game against Tennessee at a quote-unquote neutral site. Not at his beloved home field of Beaver Stadium. He can't believe his eyes. But as he looks at the schedule, he sees that it's even worse. That neutral site is in Memphis, Tennessee. Like Tennessee Athletic Director Bob Woodruff once boasted regarding a UCLA matchup he coordinated in the same city, Tennessee playing in Memphis is like Notre Dame playing in Rome. Well, I remember There was nothing neutral about this neutral side. And Joe Paterno is only just now realizing the dilemma he is facing. A home field advantage is a real thing, and he'll be darned if he's going to let Tennessee take that advantage two years in a row. He needs this 1972 home game to be played at home, his home, in State College, PA. And he has a plan. First, he verifies there's already a night game scheduled in Memphis on the same day in the same stadium. Next, he checks with a friendly meteorologist who confirms that on that day, it will be an unbearably, insufferably hot day in Memphis. Armed with his pseudoscience, Paterno calls Bob Woodruff to ask a question to which he already knows the answer. Mr. Woodruff, Memphis is just so hot in early September. Can we move the kickoff time at the Liberty Bowl to later that night when it's much cooler? Oh, what's that you say, Mr. Woodruff? Memphis State is already playing in the Liberty Bowl that night? Oh, that's a shame. Well, Bob, we agree it's too hot, and Penn State just can't play our home game down south in the daytime, and there's not another stadium in Tennessee with lights to host a night game. I mean, if Tennessee had lights at Neyland Stadium, we'd certainly play there. But since it doesn't, might I suggest we play the game here in State College? It's really too bad. But unless you somehow can install lights in Neyland Stadium in just a couple months, we'll just see you and the volunteers up in Pennsylvania. Well, turns out Bob Woodruff had a plan too. And thanks to his plan, Tennessee would see Penn State in a couple months, as noted by Joe Paterno, but not in State College, PA. As John Ward always said, nobody ever got the best of Bob Woodruff. And so Penn State would play its home game against Tennessee in Neyland Stadium. 
from VFL Films and the Vol Network, I'm Ben Bates. And I'm Barry Rice. And this is A Host of Volunteers. Welcome to the show. Now, we've discovered there's a passionate and dedicated audience out there listening to this podcast. Thank you very much to each and every one of you. Now, please encourage your fellow Vol fans to subscribe and rate and review us. It will help us to keep doing these shows. And please reach out to us through our website, ahostofvolunteers.com, where you can send us emails, but also you can check out pictures and video related to these stories as well. And as suggested by the opening segment, today's story is a continuation or a sequel to our last show. The story of Tennessee versus Penn State did not end with the thrilling destruction of the Nittany Lions' undefeated 1971 season. The story actually continued just nine months later with another matchup in 1972 and with one really big change in the program. The 1972 opening home game was the first night game ever played at Neyland Stadium. The largest crowd in Tennessee history, over 72,000 fans are on hand to see Tennessee play Penn State. And Shields Watkins Field shines like an emerald in the night. Shines like an emerald in the night. Beautiful. I mean, yes. Who writes that kind of stuff? Uh, I can think of one guy. Yep. Yes. Now, Ben, the first game ever played at night in Tennessee history was a 13-0 victory over LSU on November 4th, 1944. In Baton Rouge, I'm assuming. In Baton Rouge, yes. Thank you. So it was away, and it was 30 years before Neyland Stadium would see the lights installed. So why so long? Well, check the name on the stadium. General Neyland believed football was a game to be played in the daytime. End of discussion. I'm on board with that. Uh, yeah, <laughs> same here. Uh, eventually, though, thanks to Bob Woodruff, lights would be installed. Now, we'll review that first game under the lights shortly, but nobody ever remembers the second game or the third game or any of those early ones. Just because we had lights didn't mean we always used them. TV games were still rare, so mostly we turned them on to play under cooler conditions early in those first few seasons. So the next time they turned on those lights was the 1973 opening game against Duke. A year later, the second game of the 1974 season against Kansas. And by the opener of 1975 against Maryland, the lights installed at great expense had been turned on for only the fourth time in four years. Tennessee and Maryland. This is John Ward to send you the play-by-play, working with Bill Anderson, who will be analyzing the contest here at Knoxville, Tennessee. Beautiful evening. Tennessee out on the field to receive the kickoff. Deep for Tennessee goes Jeff Moore, a freshman from Memphis, Tennessee, and E. Stanley Morgan from Easley, South Carolina. Morgan has been clocked in the 40 at 6-2. Runs it consistently at 6-3. Ford. Quote Mike Gales, who timed him. He's listed as a 6-4-40, but Gales told me 6-3. It's 4-2. That's right. 4-2, not 4-3 as the case may be. Morgan sets right. Moore sets left. Pretty slow. I can run it in 6-3. Here comes the kick, and 1975 Tennessee football is underway. Morgan will pull it down five yards deep. 
He is stopped by Moore at the goal line. Second and 10, Tennessee on a draw to Morgan. Morgan to the 50, Morgan to the 45, Morgan to the 40, Morgan 45, 30, 25. Watch him fly. Rack up six for the Comet from Easley, South Carolina. With one second to go in the first quarter of the game, Morgan electrifies the crowd in Maryland with a 51-yard sprint. Satchko into punt high snap. Gets it away. Tennessee's got the return on. Morgan backing up. Needs a block at the corner. Makes the catch to the 30. Here he comes to the near sideline. There's the block. 35, 40, 45, 50, 45, 40, 35, 30, 25, 20, 15, 10, 5, given 6. It was still a novelty and created a festive atmosphere. In fact, those lights were only used nine times throughout the decade of the 70s. Wow. Also, there have been other matchups against Penn State since these first two we featured. The Citrus Bowl after the 1993 season featured these two power programs at odds again. Now, we're not thrilled about the final score, nope, nope. but we do appreciate some of the calls made by John Ward in that game. Tennessee third down, about a yard to go on a one-yard pickup by Garner. Ball on the left hash mark against a five-man, now six-man front by Penn State. Garner tries for the first. He's got it 30 to the outside, 35, breaks the tackle, and slides out of bounds as he moves to the 41-yard line. So darting and dancing and slipping and sliding is Charlie Garner. This will be Schuler handing the ball off to Williams, has a corner to the left side. He's to the 45, to the 50, to the 45, to the 40, to the 35, to the 30, to the 25, to the 20, down to the 17-yard line. What a play, as it was Schuler faking the give, then shoveled and dished, and with that football spinning to his left was Billy Williams, who streaks all the way downfield after the big block on the left side by Lehman, and it's Tennessee first down and 10. Schuler out of the shotgun, snap. Here comes the pressure. Schuler throws across the middle. Complete with the ball. This is Fleming. Fleming at the 10. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 6. Touchdown, Tennessee. I called it. <laughs> You're getting better, Ward. Now, back to 1972. It's interesting that in the 1971 and 72 Penn State games, Tennessee faced the Nittany Lions in back-to-back -back home games. Very interesting. For both teams, this was the last game of the 1971 regular season. And for Penn State, it was the first game on the 1972 schedule with just a bowl game against Texas in between. Ben, Tennessee beat Arkansas after that 71 matchup, and they opened up on the road against Georgia Tech in 72. But the next time Tennessee ran out of the tee in Neyland Stadium, it was against the same team they last saw within those friendly confines. Having said all that for Tennessee, so much had changed since that last matchup. This was not just an extension of the previous game. This game featured an all-new environment and a vastly different cast of characters. Gone from that 1971 team were Bobby Majors, Philip Fulmer, Kurt Watson, Flying Jackie Walker, Ray Nettles, and the quarterback who led those guys to seven straight wins in 1971, Jim Maxwell. Blue Max. Blue Max! They were all gone. The 1972 season had the earliest starting date in Tennessee history. The 1972 volunteers would have an entirely different look, a different style, and one illustration of the newness of this squad would be the addition and anticipation of a new quarterback. Oh, just a guy named Condridge, Condridge Holloway. Holloway. Here's Bill Battle and Condridge Holloway.
The biggest difference from 71 to 72 was we had Condridge Holloway at quarterback. Uh, Auburn and Alabama were recruiting him. However, uh, Coach Bryant told Condridge that Alabama wasn't ready for a black right. quarterback, but he wanted him as a player. And Condridge said, I appreciated him telling me that. And he asked me, can I play quarterback? And I said, well, if you're good enough, you can play. And that was all he needed to hear. Yeah. And I looked at him, and he was 5'11", and he was he was probably weighed 165 or 70 when he was in high school. Yeah. And I didn't I didn't know if he could play or not, but there wasn't any reason that I knew about that if he was good enough that he could. And uh, Coach Battle said to me, "Hey, if you want if you want to play quarterback, you can jump in there and compete with the rest of the quarterbacks." And there was five of us. Mm -hmm. And I said, "That's exactly what I want to do." I'm happy that I uh, got the opportunity to come in and play quarterback and and be put in a, get the exposure that a quote unquote black quarterback is supposed to get. I never felt that way. You know, I never I never went out on the field thinking that I was Martin Luther King or anything like that. I mean, I went out to do my job and play football. You get out there against 11 other guys and start thinking politically, you're gonna get killed. I mean, you're gonna get hurt badly. You better concentrate on what you've got to do. And then after the fact, all that other stuff will take care of itself. Now, Haskell Stanback still ranks in the top 25 in Tennessee's list of all-time leading rushers. He broke a record in 1972 by piling up 890 yards in one season. The previous record was held 21 years, and it was held by the great Hank Larcella. Wow. Tennessee, second down long. Second down, about eight yards to go. Holloway on the keep. Got to pitch the ball to Stanback coming wide to the 30, to the 35, to the 40, to the 41, to the 42-yard line. Comes Canapolis, North Carolina's Haskell Stanback. That year was Stanback's first year to partner with Condridge Holloway in the backfield. Now, it turns out the partnership for the pair would continue for a lifetime. I guess I got to know Condridge first of all before anybody because you know, I came over to help, help the recruiting and got to know his mom and his, and his dad. And, and, you know, it was, it, was, it was a privilege for me to meet his parents because, you know, I grew up in a single-parent family. So to get to know his dad and, and the relationship they had, yeah, I, I was envious of that for one thing because I never experienced that myself. But, but the whole level of, 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 of talent changed yeah. when, when Bushhead showed up. <laughs> and, and my kids call him Uncle Bushhead. They do to this day. To this day, yeah. still. <laughs> The whole the whole talent level changed. Yeah, I mean, it just yeah, you know, here because you know he he could make things happen. Yeah, you know, with his feet as well as as throwing the ball, and I, and UT hadn't really had that kind of talent. Yeah, you know, I mean, they had some good passers. You know, some some guys could play quarterback, but but a mobile quarterback of of Carnage's caliber was. It was, it was something I hadn't seen. Had, we hadn't seen Southeastern Conference, really, Amen. at that time. Well, first of all, we, were, we bonded in the recruiting process. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, uh, you know, with parents and getting to know him. And he, it was more like uh, he didn't have to recruit me. Once I knew I was going to be playing with him, mm -hmm. and it was, it was just done. I mean, it, it's... The only thing I wanted to make sure of was that they really believed that I could play quarterback. Oh, they believed it. Bill Battle remembers how knowing the change coming to the 1972 team was not exactly a secret. Well, in his freshman year, if you recall, <clears throat> uh, 
uh, he had done pretty. They played three games, and he had done pretty well. But we had a a game with uh, Notre Dame's freshman uh, in our varsity open date week, and so everybody had heard about Conridge and. It turned out that about 30,000 people came to that game, to a freshman game. And normally, they might be 2,000 or 1,500 or something like that. Uh, And and so that got billing that week, which stimulated the crowd. Well, countries lit them up. And there wasn't any doubt in anybody's mind. There wasn't any doubt in, in our minds after a few weeks of practice when he was on the practice field. But... There wasn't any doubt in any fans' minds, I think, after that game. In fact, eventually Condridge Holloway would rise to a level of fame that impressed his friend Haskell Stanback. I tell people, I say, I'm going to tell you when you know you're famous and you're doing a good job. It's when they start writing country western songs about you. Then you, <laughs> you, especially in Tennessee, you done hit big time. <laughs> he was a high school down in Huntsville, Alabama. celebrating the exploits we would eventually witness. It was written by Ted Goodman and Ray Martin and sung by Johnny Vall and the Orange Peels. Whom I think we all remember very well. Love that band. (laughs) It was distributed by Dogwood Records, Handy Recording Studio, 4213 Chapman Highway, produced by John Taylor and published by Clante Publishing Company. Now, Ben, I say all this because I want to know more. Don't we all? (laughs) If anyone listening knows any of these guys or any of the story behind the making of this record, please get in touch. Immediately. (laughs) Uh, That record was made in 1973, but that hype would have to wait. In spite of the obvious talent brought to the quarterback position in 1972, there were doubts about the rest of the team. But according to Condridge, those doubts were unfounded. The one, the one major thing that stands out was the, the fact that our, our team had, had overcome a lot of, a lot of obstacles. Uh, we had been uh, labeled a bunch of young guys, that, a young offensive line that didn't have the experience nor the stability to last through a season. Uh, they, they touted us as a team that was very questionable. Um, that was... I don't think that was fair simply because we were new, but we were around and, and tutored by a veteran-type ball club. I mean, when I first came as freshman, freshmen couldn't play, so they had a freshman team. So we were together as a team that year, and then the next year we got to play as a as a varsity group, and, and we were tutored by veteran guys. Uh, 
I mean, Philip Fulmer was one of our offensive linemen there, and and they had a lot of guys that took the took the time to nurture the the young kids along. And I mean, the Ray Nettles, the Jamie Rotellas, those type of guys made sure at practice that we understood what it took to, to play Tennessee football. If Condridge was right, and if this team was tutored correctly, we'd have a glimpse of it in the opening game on September the 9th, 1972. It was played against Georgia Tech in Atlanta, and 8,000 Tennessee fans were there to witness a 34-3 victory. Ben, in the paper, Tom Seiler commented, Condridge Holloway, Tennessee's new con man at quarterback, <laughs> showed poise. He ran very little. He threw effectively. Tech's feverish defense didn't fluster him at all. He was calm in a tense battle that didn't break open until the third period. And Ben... I noticed Seiler refer to Condridge as con man in more than a few articles, and I, for one, am happy that that moniker did not stick. I would have to agree. <laughs> what is up? I, I don't know. Who Ma wants to be the con man? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we can move on from that. Now, Marvin West noted that Tim Towns and Art Reynolds shared the Loud Lick Award. Towns' hit was against big tight end Mike Oven. Gary Wyant said, and I quote, Tim looked like Yogi Berra jumping up to hit a high, hard one. <laughs> Gary. He said that with a wink, of course. <laughs> of course. Holloway is extra sharp on offense, but this play, an offensive mistake, might well have been Holloway's biggest play of the year. Uh, fans might remember there was a pass thrown by Condridge, and it was intercepted by Mike McKenzie of Georgia Tech. But wait, that's Holloway streaking downfield to catch him from behind. He was at the 30, and he had a pick six 70 yards away. Nothing standing in his way until, that is, Condridge Holloway saved the day with a truly astounding display of speed and pursuit. McKenzie came up five yards short that had to kill him, and Tech had to settle for a field goal, their only points of the day. Marvin West made note of the Tennessee defender's reaction. Quote, defensive Vols are wondering if Condridge Holloway wouldn't make a good safety someday after seeing him win the long foot race with interceptor Mike McKenzie. Sorry folks, but Condridge is going to be pretty busy, end quote. Now we said 8,000 Vol fans made the trip. They did. I'll tell you who else made the trip. Joe Paterno. He was at the game in Atlanta, and his impression was that Tennessee was much more explosive than they were even a year before. Impressive, impressive. Uh, Battle said the volunteers played better than expected that day, but there were plenty of mistakes to correct and much improvement needed before Saturday's game with Penn State. On Monday night, Tennessee practiced in Neyland Stadium so that receivers, defensive backs, and kick returners could get acquainted with the newly installed lighting system. Ben, by midweek, the UT ticket office reported that there were absolutely no tickets, not even singles, available, all due to being swamped by so many requests. That statement meant the game was a sellout, and that would ensure 70,166 fans would be in attendance. That would also be Tennessee's largest home crowd ever. Now, it was all thanks to the extra 6,000 seats just added for a partial upper deck on the south end of the stadium and the western corner. The southeast corner would not be filled in to create a complete upper deck and to block out the view of the Tennessee River, I, hate hate I know, until 1976. So for four seasons, the stadium had an odd look to it. And we'll post a picture of this on our website at hostofvolunteers.com. So check it out. 
Ben, here is what I love. You remember just now when we were saying the ticket office? And by ticket office, we mean Gus Manning. And other offices for that matter. <laughs> yes. Uh, he said there were absolutely no tickets available. Well, by week's end, Gus found 1,000 standing room only tickets to meet the demand. So 1,000 more would mean a crowd of 71,166. And I will note that the final attendance that night was 71,647. So Gus apparently found even more than those 1,000. Oh, Gus. Yeah. <laughs> also, the lights and night games created a bit of new business in town. Motel and hotel rooms in or around Knoxville were booked solid. Before there were lights, most fans just drove home after the afternoon games. Now, these games became more like full weekend events that we know today. Yes. Seems like the hotels and restaurants in town might have kicked in on the cost of lighting the stadium. <laughs> You'd think. And speaking of those lights, it was reported that UT spent a whopping $300 per hour to turn them on, and it cost $300,000 to have them installed. Also, there's a little more to the story, according to John Ward, and it relates to getting permission from the university president to put in the lights. We should note, Bob Woodruff was getting permission, in quotes, after having already told Paterno they would be installed. <laughs> Nobody ever got the best. <laughs> no, sir Ree. The president of the university at that time was Dr. Ed Bowling, and he and athletics director Woodruff went to a meeting somewhere. I don't really know where it was. It might have been an NCAA meeting. My recollection is it was in Philadelphia. That may be wrong. Anyway, uh, Woodruff made the arrangements for their travel. So they went to the meeting, and then they went back to the hotel. And Dr. Dr. Bowling's told me this story. So normally they would have separate rooms, right? President, athletic director. They checked in and they were in the same room. Woodruff had put them in the same room. Well, of course he could say, we've got to save money and everything, which he did, but that wasn't the reason. They got to the room and so Dr. Bowen said, well, surely we can have a separate room. That, you know, well, I'll just authorize we can do that. Woodruff got on the phone. He was talking to the athletic director at Penn State and Woodruff was on the phone and uh, Dr. Bowen said, We've got to get another room. Just a minute, I'm talking to the athletic director of Penn State. Now, the point of Woodruff getting on the phone here, and we can't confirm anyone was actually on the other line, is to agitate Dr. Bowling. And it went on for a while. The only thing Dr. Bowling wanted was to get into his own room. And Woodruff kept his mind off the expensive lights a little longer until finally... And Dr. Bowling says, we got to... Make a range, get off the phone and get me another room. And uh, Woodruff says, Penn State will come to Tennessee again next year for the opening game if we have lights and can play them at night. Get the other room. Can we have lights? Yeah, yeah, we can have lights. <laughs> and so Tennessee put up the lights. Well, now tell me anybody else can pull that deal. Huh? Now, Barry, I'm sure you remember this, but Ward never missed an opportunity mm -hmm. to sing the praises of Bob Woodruff. That's for sure. Everything yeah. seemed to always <laughs> lead back to Woodruff because he time and time again said he was the most brilliant man I ever worked with. Yep. And that's no offense to anybody else he's worked with. <laughs> Apologies. He worked with us too, remember? Yeah, well, no surprise there. But he loved Bob Woodruff, and you could tell in that last soundbite. No doubt. 
Now, Penn State football co-captain Greg Ducati or Ducate, apologies, Mr. Ducati or Ducate, if I have mispronounced your name. Greg played down any talk of revenge against Tennessee. This is a different Penn State team and a different Tennessee team. Ducati says some of their players are back, and so are some of ours. But this isn't just any rematch. It's the first game on this year's schedule. But, Ben, it's funny because when quarterback John Huffnagel was quoted on the very same day, he said, it's going to be a revenge match. No matter what anyone says, we're coming with fire in our eyes. I would say that's the more accurate sentiment. <laughs> I think so. We seem to have a section now in every show called, Can You Imagine That Happening Today? Well, here's this week's edition. First, the University of Tennessee honored its sports writing <laughs> friends who have been, according to the invitation to this event, in harness 25 years or more at a luncheon at the Regency Hyatt Hotel. The university, and by university, <laughs> I mean Haywood Harris and Gus Manning, threw a party to honor their friends in the media. <laughs> Don't think that happens much today at any university. No, I would not see uh, the media being honored uh, in such a way. But that was a different time, different era, and different people. Oh, and it gets better. <laughs> 700 guests attended, and the list of speakers included Joe Paterno and Bill Battle. This party <laughs> was on the day of the game. The two coaches took time out of their game prep to sit together and by all accounts, enjoy the experience. Can you imagine that happening today? Never. With, again, no coaches in America would do such a thing. Now, the honorees from the media included Tom Seiler, Bill Dyer, Harold Harris of the New Sentinel, and Ed Harris of the Journal. And Ben, one thing that I love, I think a lot of people love, are the diagrams that Bill Dyer used to do. Let's post one from this game yeah. that appeared the day after this, uh, this uh, historic game. So take a look at the website, check out a diagram. Definitely. You won't believe who stole the show that day with his remarks. Right. It actually was Joe Paterno. So Coach Paterno and I sat together, and that was great because we talked about a lot of different things. And... Uh, uh, and I was uh, really impressed when he got up to speak. He, he said, uh, I think it's great that Tennessee is honoring uh, the media who have uh, uh, covered Tennessee sports for 25 years. And he said, you know, I, I told my wife, this is the age of transplants. And they're having hand transplants and heart transplants and finger transplants. And he said, I told my wife, if I ever had to have a heart or a brain transplant, I wanted the donor to be a newspaper person because I wanted a heart or a brain that had never been used. <laughs> <laughs> Great line. So I thought, man, my, my stock in Coach Paterno went up. <laughs> so two great coaches, two great schools, and two great football traditions are meeting here before a packed house at Shields Watkins Field in Knoxville, Tennessee. Okay, just a little more setup here for Tennessee. The Vols were on an eight-game winning streak heading into the game, and Bill Battle was at that point 21-3 as head coach. Not bad. Right. Tennessee entered the game ranked seventh in the nation, and Penn State came in at number six. Here's Haskell Standback. I mean, we went out there with the expectations. We go whoop to ass, yeah. period. I mean... 
you come back, it's nighttime. You know, don't make no difference. You yeah. know, and and but it was a lot of excitement about first night game with with all the uh, hoopla and whatnot. Penn State brought in with the coach and 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 the players and. I think it was it was more excitement about sharing that first experience with the fans to be playing in England Stadium first time at night yeah. against a against a town like Penn State. Townsend will kick off. The Volunteers with their kickoff unit in there. We're checking to see if there's a freshman out there. We're set to go as Townsend hits it, and it is coming downfield to be taken by Heyman, two yards deep in the end zone, to the goal line, to the 5, to the 10, to the 15, and to the 18-yard line where he is tackled. Now defensively for Tennessee, the ends will be Ken Lambert and Carl Johnson. The tackles, Robert Pulliam and John Wagster. The linebacking core on the strong side will be Rotella going left as Penn State li lines up in the eye with two tight ends. Handoff, tailback, coming outside, cuts to the 20, to the 22, to the 23-yard line, fumbles the ball. Let's see if there has been a recovery. It has been recovered by Tennessee, I believe. Let's wait and see as the officials unstack them. Penn State says it's still our ball, and one official indicated that it was Tennessee's. The other moves in and says, no, the man was down. A too bad instant replay Carl wasn't Johnson a thing back Jamie then, but Penn State mistakes were a factor in the early part of this contest. Right, Huffnagel back to throw, looking for his tight end pass downfield is intercepted Tennessee intercepted Tennessee 42 yard line Eddie Brown great coverage on the intended receiver tight end Bob Rickenback there was some discussion by Penn State he made that catch in bounds by two steps the man who made the play really was the cornerback over here who was Graham who had the tight end covered and then Brown stepped right in the gap to intercept the pass, stepped out of bounds at the Tennessee 40-yard line. The Vols pick it off on the interception. Condridge Holloway will be in at quarterback for Tennessee. So here's the big moment, uh, Ben, for me anyway. What I thought was a significant moment in Tennessee history, Condridge Holloway's first play in Neyland Stadium. Only Condridge Holloway doesn't think that way. What I don't think a lot of people realize is that was your first, that was your home game debut. You played Georgia Tech the week before, but you'd never played in Neyland Stadium until that game. Do you remember that? Do you remember wanting to come out and show what you got? It, it, it wasn't that way, seriously, <laughs> because it, your, your, your own teammates and especially your coaching staff, Coach Jim Wright, they didn't allow that mentality. They didn't let you even practice that way. Yeah. It was one of those things that you're, you're doing what I'm telling you to do to lead up to game day, and that's how we practice. I mean, it wasn't – your own teammates would have beat that out of you before you got to a week practice, right, Ask? Yeah, I mean, right. you, didn't, you didn't act that way. That's right. You just didn't. I love that's it. That's just man. the way it was. Yeah. Do Unbelievable. You, <laughs> I know. Do you really need another reason to love Condridge? No matter how much I tried, I couldn't get him to step into that spotlight. Everything is about team with that guy. So one of those teammates, let's just say, found the end zone on the first series. It's a four-play drive and the first score ever under the lights. Split out to the right is Howard. Tight end stays in as Holloway pitches to stand back. 40, 35, 30, cuts back to the 25, 20, needs a block. Ladies and gentlemen, he is home free. Touchdown, Tennessee. Haskell stand back with a block by Chansey, goes 41 yards, and Tennessee racks up six points 
at night in Knoxville with a great run by the junior from Kannapolis, North Carolina. Penn State's troubles continued. Back once again in the I formation, handoff second man through, cuts inside, breaks free to the 45, down to the 40, down to the Tennessee 35, fumbles the ball at the 33-yard line, rolls down to the 25, down to the 24, it's recovered by Tennessee. Tennessee recovers the fumble at the 25-yard line. David Allen is the man who pounces on the ball. It was almost a touchdown scamper by hard-running Cayette, who really made a move at the line of scrimmage, broke outside. Tim Towns raked him for the tackle and forced him to lose the football, and Tennessee again is the beneficiary of a defensive gem. This time, the tackle by Towns, the fumble by Cayette, the recovery by Allen. Tennessee first and 10 at the volunteer 25. No points, just a punt, but things were about to change. Play to be resumed as this will be quarterback Huffnagel fading back to throws, being pressured by Carl Johnson hits. He fumbles the football and it has been recovered by Carl Johnson of Tennessee. Tennessee shifts now sends motion back toward you and the person of Howard. They're going to throw toward the motion this time. Here's Holloway running with the ball instead to the 25, breaks outside to the 20, down to the 15, down to the 10, down to the 8-yard line. Goes the darting, dancing Hundridge Holloway. Over there, right on top of him to make sure he isn't injured is Steve Eurobeck. But Holloway widens them out all over the field as Tennessee had people spread from sideline to sideline, and he simply dances between, around, and among them, down for 20 yards to the 9-yard line of Penn State. Tennessee has it for a first down and goal to go. First and goal. Penn State with a six-man front. Holloway going to the left. Keeps. Cuts inside five. Breaks outside four. Dives to the three-yard line. What a darter, Bill Anderson. He is quick as a cat. Of course, that's the thing he really does best, John, is get back, get some good depth, look down the field if he can't find the receivers. And the defense sort of gets, uh, starts breaking down and getting a little bit confused, and he can pull it down and dart. Now, he just uh, cut inside on it. That was the option. He just saw a little crack there. Not enough crack for the normal quarterback to get through, I wouldn't think, but he threw it like a shot. Down to the three, second down goal. Tennessee leads 7-0, 4 4 to go in the first quarter. Pitch comes to stand back, coming wide. Driving, 4, 3, 2, 1, 6. Give it to him. Touchdown, Tennessee. Stand back has gone both ways. First on an electrifying sprint. Then it was power behind Emmendorfer's block. But when he was met at the two-yard line, he bowled his way head down into the end zone. It's 14 to nothing. Tennessee has only run 12 offensive plays in three drives. So, yes, things are going well. On the other end, the first quarter ends with three turnovers by Penn State. The second quarter is much the same. At 12 minutes, Art Reynolds begins to make a name for himself. Capaletti at tailback. Huffnagel back to throw. He's being pressured. Intercepted by Tennessee. 45-40. Has the ball at the 35, and he's rung to the ground back upfield at the 37-yard line. Art Reynolds intercepted, but the play was made. Most of the second quarter was a mess until 3:04 left in the half. Holloway brings them up in the eye. Chancey and Rudder, his running back complement. Rudder in motion left, picked up by the linebacker to the left side. Pass out into the flat. Rudder makes the catch to the 30. Rudder with a great stride, staying in bounds to the 28. Fights past the 25 and moves it forward to the Penn State 23-yard line. 
Love splits left, splitting wide out to the right side. With motion that way is Rudder from his tailback slot. Holloway, handoff, Chansey, hold, 25, 20, 15, 10, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 6. Six big ones for Chansey. What a run by the Knoxville Junior. What a run. We'll be back to tell you more about it with a fine halftime show by the Pride of the Southland Band. After telling you the score at the end of the first half, Tennessee 21, Penn State nothing. This is a great little tidbit I found in the Sentinel. Tennessee's first night football game at Neyland Stadium was an expensive one for a Vol fan named Jim Ribe of Marietta, Georgia. Ribe was on a fishing trip at Great Falls Pass, Oregon, and unable to get the game on the radio. Apparently, Ben, the Vol Network was not a big deal out west. Mm. So Ribe placed a phone call to the new Sentinel Sports Department and asked an employee to lay the phone next to the office radio, and he listened to John Ward's call over the phone and across the country until the end of the game. Uh, Jim Ribe, wherever you are, bless you, sir. You are our kind of all. Big time. Yeah. By the end of the first half, you could excuse the head coach and the players if they were thinking this thing was in the bag. And I'm thinking going into the locker room at halftime, this is going to be like the 71 game, and we're going to beat the heck out of these guys. And I don't know why these people are rated to be so good and how they beat all these people because they, you know, we really are a lot better than them. Well, obviously, they weren't thinking the same thing I was thinking at the halftime because they came on, on in the second half and started going up and down the field. Now, what looked to be a route changed completely after intermission. On the opening drive of the second half, John Huffnagel connected with speedster Jimmy Scott for a 69-yard scoring pass. As coach Joe Paterno finds his team behind 21-0, this the opening game of the year for the Nittany Lions. The ball's leading 21-0. Double set flanked right. Bland slots inside of Scott. Eye formation. Huffnagel back to throw. Looking downfield. There's bumping. Pass completed. Great move taken by Scott. Nobody's going to catch him. Makes the catch to the 45, 40, 35-30, 25-20, 15-10-5. Touchdown, Penn State. 69 yards. Huffnagel to Scott. As there was bumping, Tennessee ran into itself in the secondary, and Scott just burst free. And once he got the pass, which was right on the money from Huffnagel, there was no catching him. Penn State, 69 yards of the pass from John Huffnagel to Jimmy Scott. That quick. And Tennessee suddenly remembered what Joe Paterno had said that week about his star quarterback. Huffy is the best college quarterback in the country. He can do it all, run, throw, handle the ball, and he is a leader. He could be the best quarterback Penn State has ever had. Duly noted. <laughs> and then Tennessee does what Tennessee should not do. It goes three and out on the very next possession, and then on the next possession, Tennessee fumbles on its very first snap. Penn State takes full advantage. Football, a game of quick change. And that long touchdown pass, when Tennessee's defense got bumped into itself, has turned the game around. And compounding it was a Tennessee fumble recovered by Penn State. The Lions had the ball at the Tennessee 12-yard line. Huffnagel lines up. This is Nagel diving into the end zone for the Penn State touchdown. Touchdown, Penn State. So Penn State is right back in the middle of this football game and then some because the momentum is with them. The third quarter sees Tennessee do very little and Penn State gets hot. 
Tennessee 21, Penn State 14, and the fourth quarter will be the deciding canto. Holloway will be the quarterback. And the fans who were sitting there enjoying a 21-0 lead come to their feet urging Tennessee's offense to go to work. Holloway back to throw, looking. Pass across the middle, complete. Leach, 35, 37, 38-yard line. Holloway keeping, 40, 42, 45, 46-yard line. Condridge Holloway on a keeper left, hurtling the ball past the 45-yard line of the Volunteers to the 46. Holloway back to throw. There's the tight end again. Pass complete, 35-yard line to Leach. Same play. Holloway. Fakes to rudder. Throw back to throw. Looking. He's going to run. 35, 30. Away from one man to the 25, 20. Cuts to the inside of the 19. Down to the 18-yard line. Goes Condridge. Holloway. Finally stopped by Scorpan. But Holloway, in real trouble, darted out of there and streaks it down to the 19-yard line. 14-yard run. First down, Tennessee, at the Penn State 19. Tennessee with its first sustained drive of the second half. Power eye. They shift, slotting right. That's Trot inside of Love. Now he's in motion back to the wide side of the field. They're going to pitch the ball to no. It's Holloway back to throw. Flipping it out here to Trot. Trot at the 10. Trot at the 9. Very close to first down. He spins forward to the 8-yard line. But he say they say his knee dragged the ground at about the 9. It's going to be very, very close to a first down. Chains being brought in and stretched. The crowd will tell you. First down, goal to go, Tennessee. And what can you say? Nine tough yards to go. This perhaps will undoubtedly the toughest nine yards in football. Pitches the ball to stand back at the five, at the four, at the three, down to the two-yard line. Holloway was wrapped up and was being thrown to the ground at the ten-yard line when he showed a pass just like a shortstop would a double play to the second baseman, who in this case was Haskell Standback. Penn State had all committed to Holloway because he was down, but he somehow edged the ball wide to the scampering Standback, who turned the corner at the 10, battled to the 5, dived at the 3, was pinned at the 2 by Bruce Bannon. It will be third and goal at the 2-yard line. Sap and Standback, the running backs, power eye left. Pitch to Standback. He's going wide to the left. He's trying to get to the corner. He scores for Tennessee. Haskell Standback fights his way into the end zone, and the Volunteers go 80 yards in how many plays? 13 plays. 80 yards in 13 plays, and use, as I calculate it, seven minutes and eight seconds on that drive. There's timeout on the field with the score, Tennessee 28, Penn State 14. But back came the Nittany Lions and John Huffnagel. Back to throw, looking for his tight end. There he is, pass into the end zone, touchdown. Pass was thrown to Don Natal, who got free in the end zone, and Huffnagel watched him free himself. That tight end pass right on the money. Penn State has scored its 20th point. And with 5.53 to go in the game, the Lions stay right in the middle of this one. Again, the Vols lost a fumble. And here was the moment of truth. Fourth down, nine, Penn State at the Tennessee 32-and-a-half-yard line. 2.52 to go in the game. 
This has been a great football game. Courage for Penn State. Mistakes cost them early in the game. Tennessee converted two mistakes into early touchdowns in the first quarter. Huffnagel. Back to throw. Waiting. Throwing out into the flat. Incomplete. Covering over here was Allen. Intended for Scott. Tennessee's defense holds. The Volunteers have the ball, but don't leave. Two minutes, 46 seconds left to go on this game. Anything can happen, and possibly will. Tennessee's defense held at its 32. Penn State got one more chance against the Vols. Clock is running, and the fans in the stands trying to edge it on. Speed it up, they say. Penn State says slow it down. Tennessee leading 28 to 21, 216 to go on the game. The biggest crowd ever to see a game and we're being pointed out that there are people on top of the roof of the buildings on the campus to our left. But Penn State has it fourth down and seven to go. Tennessee with a four-man front. The linebackers feigning. Tennessee pretty much with an umbrella defense deep. Fourth down seven. Tennessee leads 28-21. Huff they go back to throw. Here's that pass across the middle. It is complete. Taken downfield by Scott at the Tennessee 32-yard line. It will be enough for the first down. Scott and Bland. Huffnagel feels a blitz. Dumps it out into the flat. Taken by Heyman. Heyman at the 30. Heyman at the 27. Heyman at the 26-yard line. He's tackled. The clock is running. Count it off. Four, three, two, one. Tennessee has beaten Penn State in a great football game at Neyland Stadium. That's the story as the Volunteers register the victory. 28 to 21, but the Vols hold on to win the first night game, a classic that will long be remembered by Tennessee football fans. Beating Penn State would launch Tennessee toward a 10 and two season. The losses are worth noting, Ben, because they were just so close to going undefeated that mm. season. A six to 10 loss to Auburn in Birmingham. Gosh. And a 10 to 17 loss to Alabama at home. Oh, that's I, rough. Kills me. Now, we should point out that this game against Alabama marked the first time the Pride of the Southland marching band played Rocky Top during a football game. So, bravo to the Pride. Also, we mentioned earlier the losses that kill me, but we ought to take pride in these victories. Not only did we beat Georgia Tech, not only did we beat Penn State, we also, in the non-conference, beat Wake Forest, Memphis State, and Hawaii. In the conference, Georgia, Ole Miss, Kentucky, Vanderbilt, and LSU. Go so, Vols. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great year. On the night, Haskell Stanback rambled for 101 yards and 15 carries and three touchdowns. Later that year, he added 133 against Alabama and 143 against Vanderbilt. On Condridge Holloway's debut night in Neyland Stadium, he was 10 of 16 for 97 yards, and he also ran for 55 yards. By year's end, he would be named the National Sophomore of the Year in all of college football. But it was something off the field, after the game, away from the lights, that just might be the most incredible story of the night. Coach Paterno, as he came out to shake my hand, he, he said, congratulations, you all play the game the way it should be played. And I'd really like for my, our fans in State College to be like your fans wow. here in Tennessee. And he said, I'd like to come talk to your team. And I said, man, I'd love to have you come talk to our team. So he went over and talked to his team and I held hours and, and to, to, to to let the press in and so he came over and he said the same thing he said uh, you know I, I just wanted to come over and congratulate you we played you two years in a row and 
and you all play the game the way it ought to be played and you're to be commended. He said, but the real reason I'm over here is I told my friends in State College that I wasn't leaving Knoxville without being in the winning dressing room. I just didn't know this was going to take this to do that. And I thought, man, that's the classiest thing I ever saw. So I became a great Joe Paterno fan. That is absolutely amazing that he would say that uh, in that uh, situation. You'd think he would just be miserable and want to get the heck out, and he takes time to do that. that that's impressive. That's pretty classy. Yeah. Now, John Capaletti would have a spectacular season and a career for Penn State. He would win the 73 Heisman Trophy, but on this night, the Tennessee defense held him to only 74 yards on 22 carries. Side note. If you recall, in our last episode, we discussed Bobby Majors against Penn State yes. quite a bit. Yeah, yeah. The guy that made the tackle on his opening kickoff return, John Capaletti. No kidding. How about that? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Learn something new every day. Now, back to where we were. To that point, John Huffnagle had lost only twice as Penn State's quarterback. Both were to Tennessee, and he would go on to win the rest of his regular season games in 1972. And here's a nice gem provided by our friend, friend of the show, Alan Spain, dating back to midway of the 1970 season, all the way through the first game of the 1974 season, Penn State lost only three games and only two regular season games, both in Knoxville to Tennessee <laughs> for a record of 39 and three. So how much did those two games in Knoxville bother Paterno? Well, here's a nice tidbit from our former SID, David Grimm. Tennessee goes to play Penn State in basketball in State College, PA, over 24 years later, wow, December yeah. the 7th, 1996. Tennessee's staying at a hotel called the Nittany Lion, of, of course. course. Yeah, why not? Well, apparently Joe Paterno is there. Just randomly. <laughs> he walks up to the Tennessee contingent and he says, you tell Gus Manning he still owes me a home game. <laughs> Beautiful. I think it mattered to him and the Penn State fans. What do you think? I think with that, our work is done. Yes. Thanks for listening to A Host of Volunteers. A Host of Volunteers is hosted by Ben Bates. It's written and produced by Barry Rice. Archives are provided by the Vol Network and VFL Films. Sound design and technical support, Paul Jones, Ben Altshuler, Tom Backus, and Arlation Music. Additional music provided by NFL Films and APM. Check out photos and episode notes at our website, hostofvolunteers.com. The button is actually called Associated Media. Also, thanks to the greatest archivist out there, Alan Spain, for finding and supplying so many gems. Finally, and most importantly, thanks to the Letterman. I mean, we just wouldn't have a, a show without them, so thanks to all the legends. Until we meet again, thank you and good afternoon.